0: It there at the end. Man, this is exactly what Jesus saved us to do to bring glory to his name and unity with one another. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to read verses 3 through 9. So, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of The salvation of your souls. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, as we declare, Holy, holy, holy is your name, we join with the chorus of seraphim and heavenly creatures gathered around your throne, declaring and exclaiming your holiness for all of the cosmos to know. But God, as we make that declaration, How can we not but wonder what we are doing in the presence of one who is holy? How is it that we can stand it? What... What right of ours is it that we could come except that you have given us that very privilege. You have given us that very access. You have given us that very inheritance through Jesus Christ who came, who lived the life I could not live, who died the death I should have died, who was buried in silence in the tomb but has raised on this very day to sit beside you. And right now, right now, he is interceding on our behalf, before you, O Lord. And when he declares us before you, he has clothed us in his very holiness. O Lord, what right do we have? The right that you have given to us. The right that you have given to us. And so Father, I pray that however many people are here this morning would be the number of people that just can't get over that that we would rest in it, that we would rejoice in it, that, we would reson- that it would resonate with our souls. We ask these things now in the name of Jesus, the risen name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. You know, you don't have to go looking very far to find things that look scary, do you? You can turn on the news, you can scroll through Facebook, you can uh, read a newspaper, if any of you actually still get newspapers. And everything that you see there is terrifying, if we're really honest about it. On February the 25th, the House of Representatives passed a bill called the Equality Act. The Equality Act. Where essentially, they are legislating the... Modern view of sexuality and gender, so much so that potentially religious institutions and religious nonprofits could come under penalty if we do not capitulate to modern views of sexuality and gender. And it's scary. It's scary when the government begins to legislate their own theology and make theological decisions on behalf of the church. It's scary. Two weeks ago, A tornado touched down in Calhoun County and went from Ohatchee all the way through Webster's Chapel, leaving decimation in its wake. Five people, five precious souls dead. Entire families essentially decimated. And it's hard not to think what's the difference in my house and theirs? What's the difference in my family and theirs? Because we know the answer there is no difference. There is no difference. And so when we contemplate the lack of real control that we have over our lives, the lack of real control that we have over the safety of our babies, over the, the security of our homes, it's, it's scary. It's scary. On Wednesday, there were 60 protesters that marched around the state capitol, the state of Alabama, with signs protesting, protesting that children, not college students, not adults, children could make decisions to change their their gender to something other than what they were biologically assigned. Children. We turn on the news, we scroll through our Facebook feed and it's scary. It's terrifying. On Friday, a crazed man behind the wheel of a car charged toward guards at the Capitol who were doing nothing but their job, who have families and marriages and problems and issues just like me and you just wanting to get to the end of the day so they can go and have a good friday service perhaps and they're run down by a car one of them killed another injured scary it's scary what we see in our world what we see in our culture what we see on our social media feeds is scary it's not new it's not new if, if you look turn on the CNN or Fox News or or scroll through your Facebook or open the USA Today app and and you find yourself becoming anxious becoming nervous becoming frightened by what you see that you could relate well to what was happening in the day that Peter wrote his first letter he was writing it to a church that was enduring harsh persecution and extreme suffering See, it was written to the churches of Asia Minor. And the churches of Asia Minor were a part of the Roman Empire. And at the time, there was an emperor, a wicked man. He he was really an ineffective leader, a very unpopular emperor. He was a man by the name of Nero. Nero, he never actually wanted to be the emperor. He wanted to be an artist. And so he always wanted to be a musician or a painter or something like that. And, And he spent a lot of his time as emperor, not really over the empire... But by trying to gain for himself some notoriety as an effective and uh, aspiring artist. And one day while he is holding a concert outside the city of Rome, kind of in the uh, more remote areas, Rome catches on fire. And Rome burns to the ground, quite literally burns to the ground, and a rumor begins to break out among the empire. Historians debate whether or not it's actually true, but a rumor breaks out among the empire because Nero, he's not in the palace, he was under no threat of, of the flames. He was out of town somewhere, and so the rumor breaks out that Nero set the fire himself that what Nero wanted to do was to rebuild the empire in his own image and rebuild Rome with his own architecture so that he would glorify his own name. And he was already known as a a ruthless man. He was already known as a foolish man. He was already known as an extravagant spender. And so all of these things fit perfectly in line with his character. So whether it was true or not, what was certainly true is that Nero needed a scapegoat. Nero needed a scapegoat. He needed somebody that he could pin the fire on that would take the heat off of him personally. And said, you know who he blamed? There was this burgeoning religious sect that followed a teacher from Galilee who they were convinced had raised from the dead a group of, of people that were called Christians or little Christ, they were called the way. And, and you know how when things are new, people are suspicious of it, right? People are skeptical of it. And so he he pinned it on this fast-growing movement, kind of killing two birds with one stone, not not taking loyalty away from him anymore. And at the same time, it kind of took the heat off of him. And so what they began to do is they legislated persecution of the early church in the Roman Empire. And they began to round up Christians from all around the far stretches of the empire. And they would take sometimes those very Christians and they would place them right there in the forgive me for that, right there in the middle of the Roman Colosseum and there would be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of of spectators and they would put a Christian in the middle of the ring and send a lion in to devour him for sport as the crowd would cheer on in satisfaction. Nero would take groups of Christians and he would would impel them and run stakes through them and then he would cover them in hot, molting wax and he would light them up. As candles to illuminate his garden. Neighbors began to betray neighbors. Parents began to disown their children. Christians couldn't come into cities, let alone come into inns and places to stay, which is why hospitality is such a significant deal in the New Testament. It was costly, it was expensive. In other words, everywhere that they looked, they had temptations to fear. Everywhere they looked, they had opportunities to be afraid. Outside of every door, around every corner, on every day, was the threat that dad may not come home. In fact, they all knew of parents, they all knew of friends, of, of brothers and sisters within the church that had not come down. But what we find out is that it does not stop the church. In fact, that's what First Peter is written to address. Suffering, persecution, even of the most, of the most hateful and unimaginable kind, even of the highest heat, did not stop the church. In fact, in fact, what it did, what it did is it served to, to propel the church and perpetuate the church and purify the church. And so listen to what he says at the end of verses 8 and 9, because I want to see how we get here. He's talking to them. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In other words, what he's saying is even though you aren't like me, you didn't walk with Jesus and see him with your physical eyes, even though you didn't gather around the Sea of Galilee and hear Jesus teach, you have seen the truth and you believe in him and you love him and he has brought to you a joy that is inexpressible, so inexpressible that even in light of of the hatred that you have encountered, even in light of the pain that you have experienced, even in light of the grief and the loss that you have known, you are able to praise the Lord. You are able to praise the Lord. That is what the early church realized, was that though the one whom they could not see was greater than the fear that they could see, that their hope in the one in whom they could not see was greater than the fear of what they could see. So what I want us to see this morning, what I want us to look at this morning is, is how how is it that that we have the opportunity to have a hope like this? The, The kind of hope that can endure so that we can love Him, though we do not see Him, so that we can believe Him, though we do not see Him, so that we can praise the Lord, even when we are experiencing various trials of all types. The first way I want you to see that we Learn from these early Christians is that our eyes are open. Our eyes are open. They're, 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 if you look at verses 9 through 12 in the original Greek, what you have there is you have one full sentence. Like it's one sentence with some really complicated probably not the greatest grammar in the world. Like Peter was a fisherman, right? He's not Paul. He's not a scholar. Peter's a fisherman. And so he writes like this really long run-on sentence. It may have been that he was dictating it to someone. You know, you, you speak much differently uh, than you write. But you have uh, these, these this one long sentence over uh, these nine verses, and really it breaks into three movements. We're going to look at these first two movements and see how they fit together. But what you see coming out of the gate is that he lays a bedrock for us, that we can have hope regardless of what we're facing. The bedrock that he lays for us, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's giving us in, these, in this one long sentence the reason in which we can praise. And here comes the bedrock. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That what what he says is, is that you see a predicament that you're in, but the predicament is not the defining characteristic of your life. I had a friend uh, a few years back, and he was going through a really, uh, just a difficult time in his life. And what had happened is, is that he had become saved. He was a new Christian, and he was a guy, man. He, he really got it. It all connected. And when he was saved, he went 100% in, and he, he laid down his life before Jesus, and he said, Jesus, I want you to have everything that I have. And uh, what happened is once he had done that, his life became harder than it had ever been. His life became more difficult than it had ever been. And so one day I remember uh, after church, he, called, he, he uh, pulled me aside He said, Cody, can I just take you to coffee this week? I got some things I need to talk to you about. They began to express to me that since the very moment he began to follow after Jesus, it was like all of his life got worse, all of his life got harder, personal life wasn't going as well. Marriage wasn't as easy. Job wasn't going as well. Parenting got tougher, inner struggles. He had uh, the return of like uh, demons from, from the past that showed up and just kind of came knocking on his door, and like everything in his life began to feel as though it was spinning out of control. You can imagine, that's exactly how they're feeling here in 1 Peter, isn't it? Here they are, they've committed their life to follow after Jesus. They've committed their life to, to go and be and do whatever it is that he has set before them to go and be and do. But it feels like, since they've committed to Christ, their predicament has worsened. Mom and dad have abandoned me. My brothers and sisters have abandoned me. My friends have abandoned me. I've lost my home. I've lost, I've lost my, my culture. I've lost everything. So Peter comes in and he's speaking to that. He's speaking to that. He says, yes, yes, yes. Your predicament has changed. Your predicament has changed. But not for the worse. It's changed for the better. That, that, that before you were born and you were born into death. You were born into death and you had no hope. You were born into death and you had no future. You were born into death and you had no security. You had no assurance. You had no chance but, but, but in Christ, you have been born again. You've now been born out of death and into life. You've been born into security. You've been born into hope. You now are born so that you don't have to face what you used to face alone, alone. See what happens is when we begin to place our eyes on Christ and follow after Christ and the Spirit begins to change our hearts and give us a new nature, our enemy tries to take the circumstances around our lives and use those things to rob us of the vitality of our faith to use those things around us to confuse us and to deceive us. and So, so Peter is, is cutting through all of the tape. He's cutting through all of the mess, and he's saying, no, that is not the truth. All of those are deceptions. All of the things that you have to be afraid of, all of those are just distractions of what reality is because reality is, is that you were dead, but now you were alive. You had been born in Adam, but now you have been reborn in Christ. You have a new heart and a new nature that has been given to you. And so he begins to solidify this by, by driving home the reality of this new nature they have and where it came from, so being certain of where it came from, they can be certain that it's not going to depart from them. Look at what he does. He says, according to what? This being born again happened according to what? His great mercy. His great mercy. You know what mercy is? Mercy is the opposite of merit. Mercy is the opposite of merit. Merit has to do with what you deserve. Merit has to do with with you being good enough and working hard enough and being sharp enough and being gifted enough and being born into the right family and living on the right side of the town and, and uh, having the right opportunities and and luck falling the right way. It has all to do with all that stuff, right? But in the kingdom of God, it isn't a meritocracy. It isn't a, it isn't an economy of merit. It's an economy of mercy. It's an economy of mercy. That's why he says what he says. According to his great mercy, what? He has caused us to be born again. You had as much to do with your second birth as you had to do with your first birth. That's what he's saying. I I don't know. Did any of y'all have some kind of weird control over where you would be born? Or to whom you would be born? If you'd be born into money or born into poverty? If you'd be born into the country or born into the city, if you were born into America or born into the Middle East, any of y'all have any control over that? Because if you did, let's talk. I, I, I've got questions. No, you had nothing to do with that. Your, your parents brought you into this world, right? You were, you were born into them. You didn't get to come and say, you know what, I think I'd like to have another go at it. Let's, let's try this again. Let's, let's, let's maybe get a different family. No, that was your family. You were out of control of the situation. It it wasn't based on you being good or not being good or your parents being good. and not. It wasn't based on any of that. It was the providence of God that placed you in the family that you were born into. And it's the second family. It's the same way. When you are born again, you are born not because you were good, not because you were strong. You are born because God has intervened. Because God has caused it. Because God has brought mercy and offered it to you. Now here's here's the hope of that. Here's the hope of that. You did not earn it. You cannot lose it. Huh? You did not earn it. You cannot lose it. You did not cause it. You cannot reverse it. You did not build it. You cannot break it. It wasn't about you. It was never started with you. It wasn't earned by you. All of it was according to the mercy, according to the sovereignty, according to the grace of our Lord. I think a lot of people are trained to think of their salvation the way we think of a mortgage. I, I, don't, I, I feel like every month I'm throwing money down a black hole. I mean, Anybody else feel that way? Like, paying off that sucker is so far into the future that it doesn't even feel like it's realistic. Like it just feels like it's just not gonna happen, right? And so I feel like, and now some of y'all, some of y'all, some of y'all suckers, y'all are in a different season of life, amen? You paid off that bad boy. And so I look to you and you are my hope, right? You are my candle in the darkness. But Megan and I, we are in an earlier season of life. And every month, we are throwing that money down a black hole to some random time in the future, assuming that one day a bank is going to mail us a letter and say, hey, she's yours. A lot of us, we think of our salvation as though we owe a mortgage to God. And so every day we wake up and we, we throw these good works and good deeds down a black hole. Every Sunday we get up and we get dressed and we go to church, good deeds in a black hole. Maybe we give of our money, good deeds in a black hole. We, we try to help people, we, we try to be good parents, we try to cuss less, right? We try to watch less TV, we, we try to wake up early or stay up late and read our Bibles. We pray every now and then and all of it feels like good deeds in a black hole. God, I'm trying to solidify my standing in your kingdom. Let me tell you something, all that's anti-gospel. All that's anti-gospel. Because even when you do good things, you do them with bad motives and a bad attitude, don't you? you? You're sinning as you're trying to do the good things that God would have you to do. That's hopeless. That's insecure. That's why so many of us feel like we're standing on shaky ground all the time. But the gospel says, the gospel says that Jesus has paid off your note. Jesus has paid off your debt. Jesus has not just paid off your note. Jesus has credited your account. Guess what? You can't default on a debt you don't owe. You can't be foreclosed upon When you own the house and Jesus came and died and lived in your place and raised from the grave, not so that you could have a house, so that he could give you a house. By his mercy, you own it, man. You own it. So you can't lose it. You didn't earn it. You can't break it. You didn't build it. Now how does, this, how does this get to uh, us, uh, us loving a God that we can our loving Jesus that we cannot see him, believing in Jesus though we cannot see him, rejoicing regardless of all the circumstances that we can see. How, how does this speak to that? So, so when he writes that, Jesus says in uh, John chapter 20, I think it's like verse 21, uh, he, he says, blessed are those who, who love me but do not see me. And what he's, t- what he's telling uh, is he's telling his disciples, those that, have, that believe in me, but they didn't walk with me down the streets of Galilee, those that believe me but never laid their physical eyes on me, blessed are they. Blessed are they because they are demonstrating a marvelous faith, an amazing faith in who I am, in the realities of the gospel. But the only way that we're able to do that is by God's mercy, something spectacular happens. By God's mercy, he causes us to be born again. And when we are born again, John chapter 3, 3, listen to what it says. Jesus answered him, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, there's that word, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You may not see Jesus with physical eyes, but what the Spirit of God allows you to do, according to the mercy of God, is he gives you spiritual eyes, eyes of faith to see the truth about God's kingdom. Eyes of faith to realize the truth about your sinfulness. Eyes of faith to realize that Christ is your only hope. Eyes of faith that calls for a response in your life to devote all of who you are to who Jesus is. In other words, he opens up your eyes that though you have not seen him before, though you, you uh, do not see him now, he opens up your eyes to see that which the world cannot see, which are blind to the natural man so is there any wonder is there any wonder why your neighbors think you're crazy look if if you're going to follow after Jesus full bore if you're you're actually going to give him your heart and life if you're you're actually going to commit yourself to him the world has to think you're crazy you're living for a kingdom they cannot see you're living for a kingdom that they cannot see But brothers and sisters, if you see that kingdom, a miracle has taken place in your heart and you have been born again with a new nature and a new name. So you look around and you don't have to worry about the things you see on your television. You don't have to worry about the things you see on your Facebook feed because there is a greater reality, something truer in the unseen world. And that is that the kingdom of God has come and you own a house right there. Second thing I want you to see this morning. Not only are our eyes open, but our hope is living. Our eyes are open and our hope is living. So if you think of us being born again, our regeneration as being the bedrock on which we build our faith, the bedrock on which uh, Peter is building this text, he, he then lays two cornerstones to make sure that we're building our house straight, to make sure that we're building our house properly. You'll, you'll see this come up again, but you'll see he says that we are born again to something. To something, He gives us two, two somethings. He says, he has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope. To a living hope. Now, when we typically think about hope, how do we think about it? We typically think about hope as aspirational. About something that I, I aspire to happen sometime in the future, though I'm not certain that it's actually going to happen. For instance, I hope that I'm going to get a big fat tax refund right? I hope, I don't know, but I hope, I, I hope that I'm going to uh, have good health into my later years. I hope, I hope that my car is going to go another 100,000 miles. I don't know, I hope. I hope that my kids are going to turn out okay. But when we do that, it's aspirational, meaning that, that it may not come true. It may not, it's what we desire, it's what we want, but we aren't certain. We can do all the right things, and I've seen this, and we can invest all the right truths and discipline all the right way, and your kids can still turn out to be knuckleheads, right? You can change the oil in your car all the time, and your car can still die way younger than you think it ought to. You can stash money away and stash money away and and not take on debt and, and live responsibly and still somehow end up in financial distress by one catastrophe or another. You're aspiring for something. It's aspirational. You hope for it, but you aren't sure that it's true. That is not Christian hope. That is not Christian hope. Christian hope doesn't aspire to the future. Christian hope is certain of the future. Christian hope is certain of the future. Listen to what he says. How are we certain? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, the, the world lives and they're living as though their hope is that one day it will spring into life and everything's going to turn out okay. That, that one day all things in their life are going to fit together just right and their hope is going to spring to life and it's going to become true but in Christianity in our in what we understand the gospel to mean is hope isn't going to spring to life one day our hope lives right now our hope lives right now see the resurrection isn't just about one day although it certainly is the resurrection's about today if you lost a baby you don't need hope one day you do but really? If you were honest, you said I need hope right now. I need hope right now. If your uh, dreams have been dashed, you don't just need hope one day. You need hope right now. If you are in financial ruin, you don't need hope one day. You need hope right now, today. Guess where Jesus is today? He is on the throne. He is on the throne. And Jesus has promised that one day, one day the last tear will be wiped, one day cancer will be eradicated, one day depression will... Finally be eliminated. One day, one day, you won't worry about the rebellion of your children. One day, your marriage will not be difficult. One day, all of that is going away. But the resurrection, the resurrection verifies and validates that reality for us today. So that we can live today with the energy and perseverance of knowing what is to come. It is certain today because Christ has raised. So we can make it. You see, the quality of your life is determined by the source of your hope. Let me say that one more time. The quality of your life is determined by the source of your hope. What do you hope in? Is your hope in your financial security? Guess what? That can be ruined. That can go away in a second. Is your hope in your good health and all the exercise that you do and all the organic milk that you drink Your health can be gone overnight. Is it in your kids and family? Even the best ones betray you at times. Is your hope in in the job that you have? Is it in your intellect? Is it in the fact that you just always seem to be able to make things work out in the end for you? Because if it is, you are set up for disaster, friend. You are set up for disaster, Because this world is broken and this world is under a curse. And this world and all of its dead hopes are vanity. But there is a hope that is certain. There is a hope that is, that is what Easter is, y'all. That is what Easter is. Christ has really raised. 500 plus people testify to this reality. Christ has really raised. Christ has really ascended. Christ is really reigning and Christ will really return and so our hope in him is substantiated that we can get through anything that we face here because all of this is only for a little while and Christ, Christ has been verified as the truth your hope is alive so you can have inexpressible joy in light of loss you can, you can sing praise in light of the pain that you know there's a second cornerstone that he lays, and I what want you to see, that not only is our hope living, but our inheritance is secure. See the second two here? You're born again to a living hope, and then you are born again to an inheritance. To an inheritance. Now, inheritance, if you, if you want to see families get weird, y'all know what I'm saying, don't you? You want to see families get weird, go to their funerals, Okay? There is an unusual tension in the air very often because people aren't so much concerned very often. I'm not saying always. A lot of the time, people aren't so concerned with burying the dead as they are getting the dead stuff. On getting what they believe is theirs. You put money and heirlooms on the line and people get really weird really fast. See, the way our inheritance are... are, are structured here on earth, are flimsy. They're flimsy. Every inheritance that ever happens on earth is a dead person giving something to a living person. Peter's point is that the gospel is the opposite of that. The gospel, is the, op- the gospel isn't here to offer you some flimsy inheritance, some fake golden parachute that's going to leave you plummeting to your own death. The gospel is here not as a, a dead man offering something to the living, but as a, as a living Savior offering something to dead sinners. You are dead in your trespasses. Dead in your trespasses. You know what dead people can do to fix their situation? Nothing. But Jesus, Jesus conquered the grave, overcame death, raised from the dead, reigning from heaven, that now he can offer you not the inheritance that you were owed, not the inheritance that you deserve. He can offer you his inheritance, an eternal inheritance, a secure inheritance. He compares the inheritance that he offers to the very greatest of earthly inheritances. Notice what he says. He, He uses three adjectives there to describe. He says it's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. I want you to think of the greatest inheritance that you can conceive of. Probably what you would think of is it would be something that would remind you of, of somebody that you loved. You'd probably think of something that maybe gave you kind of a golden parachute that kind of lessened your financial pressure a little bit, made, made your situation a little better. Maybe you'd think of something that provided you some protection, some, some security. Do you know where we see that in the Bible? Every time inheritance, or most of the time, inheritance is referenced in the Bible. It's a reference to the old covenant, to the promised land. Now, what was the promised land supposed to offer to his people? The presence of God, the provision of God, and the protection of God. The presence of God, the provision of God, and the protection of God, right? And so God is bringing them in there. There, God's going to dwell in their midst and he's going he's to reign bound. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey and, and everybody that tries to stand against the Lord's anointed have no chance to be able to stand against the Lord's anointed. You could say that the greatest earthly inheritance that had ever been received and maybe still has ever been received was the promised land being given to Israel. Except imagine what that would have looked like in Peter's day. Peter is a Jew writing and thinking about this. There was a stronger presence of the Roman military in Jerusalem in that day than there was the presence of God. It was a a reminder every day as they saw the occupation of the Roman Empire that their land was perishable, that it it was no longer even in their possession. They were just a, a puppet monarchy. What happened? They defiled it. They had defiled it. From the very beginning of the old covenant, they were worshiping golden cows. They had defiled the land. And so God had taken the land away from him. That which had been provided to them was taken from them because of their own sin, because of their own impurity, their own defilement of the land. It had had faded into the annals of history. It was a long time since David had been on that throne. It was a long time since the splendor of Solomon had been in Jerusalem. Christ comes. Christ comes. Listen to me, church. Christ comes. And he offers a greater inheritance in the new covenant. He offers you the presence of God. You are born again, not just aimlessly wonder, uh, wondering through what you're gonna, how you, all this is going to work out. As Christ was raised, those who are born again are born into that resurrection. So now they have inherited that resurrection. That Christ now dwells with them. They abide in Christ. Christ abides in them. The very presence of God dwelling within them in the spirit of God. The provision of God. Think about this. How did they, they they lost the provision of God because of the defilement of their sin, right? You know what? Jesus gives us a provision of what? Righteousness. A provision of grace. It cannot be defiled. You cannot mess it up. You cannot ruin it. You cannot spoil it because you have a provision of Christ, a provision of grace, a provision of righteousness that has been given to you and secured. Protection. Protection. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Amen? Nothing. Why? 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 Because we have been anchored into the palm of the Father through the provision of the Son. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so there's even a system where she's talking about that. If you look there uh, at the end of verse 7, it says, so that, and I'm sorry, at the end of verse 6, uh, In this you rejoice, though, now for a little while, if necessary. I'm sorry, verse 5. Huh. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? So he says in there. First of all, un, un, uh, un- imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for you, kept for you. The end of verse four. Kept. If, if you circle that, you can write the word reserved. I didn't include it in my notes here. It's Jesus is Peter's way of reminding them that Jesus has a reservation holding for them in heaven. Jesus says, where I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my Father's kingdom. There is a house in glory with your name on it. It's kept for you. It's got Mark's name on it, and it's got Josh's name on it. It's got Gala's name on it, and Daniel's name on it. There is a reservation in the glory of God, in the kingdom of God for you. It is kept for you, but it's not just kept for you. You are kept for it. You see what it says? It says, the power of God has guarded you. Through faith, The idea of guard is a military term. It's the Praetorian guard uh, taking the emperor on a victory lap through Roman Empire. And make sh- making sure that he's safe the whole way. That the power of God is securing you through this life. Prepare, pre- preserving your faith. Preserving your love for God. Preserving your passion for God. Allowing you to get through your darkest day through the valley of the shadow of death. Because your shepherd is in the shadow right there carrying you every single step. And this is what brings us to verses six and seven where Peter brings us into the real world. He he has this huge theology and all of this huge theology is to make one point. Our pain is momentary. You need hope this morning. Listen to me, your pain is momentary. Your pain is momentary. Listen to what he says. In this you rejoice. You rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. When he says grieve, you know what he's saying? The pain that you know isn't fake. Some people want to make, and they, they want to they spiritualize Christian pain as though Christian pain isn't real, real pain. You lose your husband, you lose your wife, you lose your dad, that's real pain, man. That's real grief. Your children rebel against you, that's real pain. Your, your spouse betrays you, that's real pain. Your health begins to fail. You get diagnosed with cancer. That's, that's real pain. You lose your job. You, your, your company goes belly up. You, you go into financial crisis. Those things are real trials that bring real grief and real sorrow and real pain into your life. But here's his point that tested, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ in other words in other words because your eyes have been opened because you have been born again because you have a living hope because you have a secured inheritance pain has lost pain has lost and hope has won The victory over the grave is the victory for hope. It is the substantiation that it is reality that you will be brought into the kingdom of heaven to the reservation that has been kept for you so that now, 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 you are immovable in this day. You are able to praise through the pain. See, that's what the gospel does. The gospel takes your pain and transforms it to praise. It doesn't negate it. It doesn't pretend like it isn't real. It puts your feet on solid rock so that you can sing through the tears. Peter knew about this, didn't he? Peter knew about this. Peter had sinned. He had betrayed Jesus, and denied, or he had denied Jesus. He, it says at the end, he, he weeps bitterly when he comes to the end of his three denials. Jesus dies, and he's convinced that hope has died with Jesus. But then when Jesus is raised, when Jesus is raised, he realizes that he could have been praising the whole time. And so he's saying, learn from my life. You've sinned, I know man, like you've sinned and you feel like you've blown it so big but can I tell you, God, it can take that pain and turn it to praise. You've experienced loss and grief. You've, you've experienced disappointments and setbacks. You've, you've come up short time and again. You've, you've failed somebody that you love but God, 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 God can turn it from pain to praise. All the grief that you know All the sorrow you've experienced is fading, y'all. It's fading. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. This light momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal. See the difference? See the juxtaposition there? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen. That brings us full circle, doesn't it? But to the things that are unseen. To the things that are unseen. This morning, where are you finding your hope? Where are you finding your hope? Are you miserable? Are you depressed? Are you anxious? Are you overcome? Are you worried? Honestly, honestly, where is your hope being found? Because in Christ, in Christ, your hope is secure. In Christ, your hope is secure. And in Christ, in the one in whom you have not seen, you have greater reason to hope then you have to fear that which you can't see. Let's pray the Lord together this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.